title of Crime, Memory and Transitional Justice in Argentina. Um, and I'm sure you don't want to hear from me, so let's hear from, from Peter. Thank you very much, Peter. Thank you for coming and thank you, Lionel, for organising this. Um, I'm really interested in hearing what you have to say, so I'll try and keep to the time, but as you can see, I have a lot of paper here, so um, that's <coughs> largely by way of memory for me. Um, okay, so... Um, I have a formal talk, but I thought it might be useful just to step back a bit from the formal talk at the beginning and say something a little bit more general that may help to kind of situate where I'm coming from and kind of the, the angle I take on the field. Um, clearly it's crime memory and transitional justice. I'm coming at it through the idea of transitional justice um, with a particular case study and interest in Argentina's um, last 35 years, I suppose. Um, so first one, first way of situating it would be to say that where I come, uh, the position or the speaking position I adopt here for today's purposes is that of a jurist. Um, and what I take that to mean is that um, the task is to take seriously the institutional life of law, um, its conduct, its authority, and its authorization practices. Um, sometimes when it gets on a good day, it gets to think. Um, as I see it, if we do this, then it provides a way into the understanding and representation of law, which importantly holds on to questions of law um, precisely as questions of law rather than deferring them to extra-legal policy considerations. Second comment by way of situating would be to make some comment about the conceptual orientation. Um, obviously I'm drawing on the fields or what Christine Bell recently characterised as a battlefield of international criminal justice and transitional justice. But what I bring to the constitutive issues of, this of these two fields is a way of reading that is informed by jurisprudence, the humanities that Lionel mentioned is how I hold these together, but also specifically psychoanalysis. Um, in the context of this paper, what it does is it puts international criminal justice and transitional justice together through the idioms of trauma. So let me just say by way of intro a few words about trauma in case one is not that familiar with its conceptual formation. Um, broad definition precise but nevertheless broad. Um, traumatic experiences are events that overwhelm and defy cognitive understanding as a standard definition that works in most instances. And what I want to emphasize from this are two constitutive dimensions of this overwhelming force of trauma. One is that the trauma is not the event itself, it's formed by both the event and its repetition or its return. Take your pick on repetition or return. Um, I'm going to be talking about the aftermath of the Dirty War, so if we think about the experiences of the Dirty War in Argentina, it doesn't become traumatic in the precise sense unless it comes back to haunt us, to possess us, and it's in that sense that language of haunting and possession is quite redolent through from the very beginning of the, so let's say, start it with the start of the madras of the Plaza de Mayo, um, it's the language of ghosts runs throughout the Nunca Mars Truth Commission report and continues on. 
in saying this, in saying that it's not traumatic unless it comes back to return, it's not to downplay, and I want to emphasise this, the injustice of the dirty war, but what it does is it emphasises that trauma involves a quite strict temporal dimension. In psychoanalytic terms, trauma is a belated experience. It's experienced as in the mode of deferred action. Um, I think in this, Argentina is exemplary. Transitional justice often falls into kind of two forms. Those which, those activities and practices that take place kind of towards the end of a, of a um, conflict, uh, authoritarian regime, and in its immediate aftermath. So in Argentina, that might look like, say, the, starting with the Madras again, and then ending uh, going through the Truth Commission report, uh, Truth Commission and its report, and then the trial of the military leaders. But then what you find quite often in transitional justice then flips, and it then starts to go, what about these ones where long time after the event you start to come back and start to revisit the um, events and the conflicts and the authoritarian regimes. What Argentina does, though, is that you can't actually make that split quite often is that it's just been continuous pretty much for 35 years and it's still ongoing, perhaps in the background sometimes, but still there and at the present um, kind of really front and centre in both public and legal life. Um, as the Madras have insisted seeing is, um, so what, what they've been trying to do here is to give you a theme is to, say, is to try and deal with and at the same time break with the past. And as the Madras, the Madras have insisted most recently um, with the conversion of one of the detention centres known as ESMA um, into a memory museum, the dirty war is not over. This, is, this was said in 2006, 2007. These kind of phrasings of when, how do you determine the end of the dirty war is a kind of, has motivated a lot of civil society activism or public protest. So trauma is event and return. Um, second, it re when it returns, it always returns in parts and in images, um, in one-off individualized contexts. Um, the images, we most often think of them if you look it up any of the kind of psychoanalytic manuals or psychiatric manuals, they'll be thinking of flashbacks, hallucinations. That's what I'm thinking of as images here, but they're flashbacks of only a part of the event, a, a kernel of the event necessarily, but something to be interpreted. So the experience of trauma is fragmentary and imagistic. In this respect, narrative, even narrative memory, seeing as how I'm going to be talking about memory projects, is extremely important. It's an attempt, the narr narrating the event, narrating the experience, is an attempt to get control of what possesses you. It's an attempt to master that experience, and so in ma mastering it, to recontextualize it. And if I refer back to that last 35 years that I just briefly evoked, is what we're seeing at particular, quite particular moments is you've got to read for how particular issues, maybe the Truth Commission, maybe the story of the kidnapped children of the disappeared, are ways of recontextualizing the dirty war once again. Um, if this is, uh, okay, so, um, in this sense, if I've used the term narrative memory, what you then have to, 
what's been drawn out here is that narrative in the attempt to control, possess, and recontextualize is never is there's a disconnect to traumatic memory, which would be the primary thing that I'm very interested in is the way in which traumatic memory, which is an acting out, a performance of an event, um, can't actually you can't actually master it. It's always something that quite escapes. So there's a tension here between narrating and imagistic experiences. Um, this is why in the talk I'm going to be talking quite a bit about questions of representation and the differentiations between information and acknowledgement. Acknowledgement going to traumatic memory, information going to narrative memory. Okay, so trauma is an event in time then to quickly wrap up and as a question of representation it's always addressed to others. And that's, I think, the force of the trauma to which transitional justice enterprises worthy of the name are a response. So how are they going to play out? Quickly wrap it up, to wrap up this introduction. I want to recall something of the memory politics and socio-legal context in the aftermath of the Dirty War, which took place in, from 76 to 83, 1976 to 1983. Um, two purposes. One, to set up the recurrent theme of the paper, the continuing force of the trauma of the Argentine dirty war for both public, law, public life and law. Um, here, think of it in terms of the demand to deal with the past and to break with the past. Um, or, and just a brief illustration of some of the tensions that I'm going to be trying to unravel, is that if you take the phrase Nunca Mars, never again in English, name of the Truth Commission report, one of the sense of that term in the debates is that it's a story of a nation gone wrong. Um, language of tra uh, tragedy, etc., just runs throughout the report. Nation gone wrong. But that's kind of, in some senses, yes. As a descriptive claim, clearly the nation went wrong. But there's also an implied normative claim in it, and that is that you look, you have to address the past and move on and it's this and move on that comes dogs the claims of an end to impunity the never again story um, that tells us that there's an implied normative claim in here because this sense is that you've got to look at it and don't look at it anymore and it's that and don't look at it anymore which I, I want to keep on tracking quite a lot um, and it's one of the reasons which gives such poignancy, I think, to the Madras process, protest and claim that the dirty war is not over. Um, second purpose of setting it up is just that it's, uh, what's really interests me about Argentina so much is the vast array of legal repertoires that, has been, that have been invented in some instances, but used in all instances to both break and deal with that past. Um, it's kind of like it's the microcosm of transitional justice and also the microcosm of international criminal law. I think an undervalued microcosm in many respects. Um, just think of the repertoires, truth commissions, we've had trials of military leaders, we've had pardons and amnesties, we've had the invention of truth trials, um, and now uh, we've, we're going through, there's going through a a period for the last since 2006 or so of intense return of criminal prosecutions. Okay, how to understand those is a little bit harder, okay, and um, I'm trying to kind of 
thinking, and it's a little bit speculative at the moment, to think of it as a working through of a trauma rather than simply a reproduction or a forgetting of that trauma. Um, second part gets a little bit more detailed and is a reading of a film, The Secret in Their Eyes, or El Secreto de Sus Hoyos. Um, what I'm trying to get at from here is to give us some specific examples of thinking about what I want to call a memorial jurisdiction, memory. Jurisdiction is the question, speaking of law. Memory here is the way in which you construct your jurisdiction is around questions of memory and forgetting. But to do it in terms of the manners of speaking, and I'm going to spell out largely questions of genre and questions of taxonomy or classification classification being a, a quite precise legal art. And then I'm going to fold that back into IC, oh, ICL in my terms, international criminal law, when I'm not reading my notes. Okay, so to begin, um, can I just get a sense of how much people, do people vaguely familiar with some of the histories, even more detailed familiar? Okay, so if I start to be, some of you are nodding, so apologies to you in advance for some of the kind of informational substructure here, um, just to get everybody involved. Um, so, Argentina is a community assailed by unassimilable experiences of injustice and suffering that return in parts and images. It is a country possessed by the dirty war that took place 1976 to 83, as I mentioned. On March 76, a military junta presided over by Videla took power from Isabel Peron in a coup d'etat. From the outset, the junta dis initiated a program of disappearing leftist guerrillas in an effort to what they characterized as cleansing and strengthening what they also characterized as a weak and extremely feminized social body. There was a quite specific focus on the student movement Yet the program soon extended into a systematic and generalised disappearing of the left and those thought to be of the left. CONADEP is the name of the Truth Commission that gets set up and they documented some 8,900 deaths and disappearances <coughs> during, during the junta, with most taking place in the first year of the regime presided over by Videla. Videla will keep on returning here in this talk a little bit as the kind of personification of the big baddie of Argentina, I suppose. Um, 8,900 is what they said. I think it's significant that we now mostly calculate the numbers at closer to 30,000, and that's no criticism of the Truth Commission. It's a it's uh, just an acknowledgement of the extreme limits that were placed on it by both the political forces at the time and also some of the legal forces, for example, the fact that it had no um, ability to plea bargain. Um, and Ernesto Sabato has argued that he would have got a lot more information, much more accurate information, if he had actually been able to plea bargain. So, disappearance. Los desaparecidos was the preferred method. As Ernesto Sabato put it, Ernesto Sabato is the president or chair of the Truth Commission and also a quite famous existentialist novelist, um, or characterized by Raul Alfonso as the most prestigious academic in Argentina at the time, at the end of the Dirty War. He um, writes emphasizing the material, visceral, and aesthetic dimensions. And I'll quote, 
in the name of national security, thousands upon thousands of human beings, usually young adults or even adolescents, fall into the sinister, ghostly category of the desaparecidos, a word bracket, sad privilege for Argentina, frequently left in Spanish by the world's press. Okay, so brief accounting of what I'm really concerned with is the aftermath, which is the response to this has been largely memory politics. In part, it's involved an immense effort to m recover the untold stories and the hidden histories of both the regime and of the disappeared. After the end of the military dictatorship, information was at a premium, especially since the criminal apparatus of power was carried out within a double ordering, and I think this is where um, the, the phrase disappeared starts to really hold make something quite significant. It's not a death, it's a disappearance. That's the issue. You've got a double ordering. One normal, open and official that targets ordinary criminality and the other abnormal operating under a de facto power and clandestine which targeted what the regime called subversives. Um, picking up on this double ordering Sabato characterized it in, I think, this great phrase as semantic delirium. Um, or Diane Taylor, who's done this wonderful book on Argentina, calls percepticide. Um, and I think that, lang that process of delirium and percepticide has actually been embodied in the now international criminal law of um, disappearances. There's something quite specific about it. It's not just the taking away. It's the fact that you conduct yourself in such a way as to hide the information of the taking, the abduction, the detention, and the deaths. OK. If that's the case, nevertheless, the lineaments of the story of the dirty war were pretty well known from quite early on. And this is not, however, again, to downplay the importance of determining the precise and specific facts of particular incidents, their perpetrators, methods, location, and their victims. This is what good law is good at. Okay, It's getting the precision. It's not so good at spelling out the larger story. Um, in fact, the investigations and files generated by the Truth Commission provided the evidential basis for numerous criminal proceedings from the trial of the military leaders in 1985 until the most recent mega-trials in 2012. In short, the narrative of the past emphasises the need for information and in doing so functions as a reminder of what is already known. I think such a politics of memory is an extreme achievement to this day. However, the larger conceptual point is to just to note that information only becomes meaningful here and only gets value by way of a larger normative story. And this is so simply because narrative memory is a way of dealing with the past which implicates, and here I want to emphasize, it's always addressed to others, okay? Narrative memory is a way of forming a world in which the narrators can appear to themselves and to others. We've got to be able to see ourselves in the story. And one of the explanations for the, some of the failures of the Newton, the uh, Truth Commission report, is that not many people saw themselves in it. They, the report itself was extremely symbolic and worked as a, a force of attraction, but actually seeing themselves in the story that was told um, was hard to see. 
but in seeing themselves or in the need to actually generate an identification with the story being told means that narratives of memory are always public and historical from the very beginning. Yet this way of dealing with the past, because of its normative pressure, pushes the story of the dirty war and its disappeared towards an insistence on breaking with the past, on not only setting right standards for the future, which is normally what we go, we look at the past in order to set up the normative standards for the future, we also, there's also a sense in which you have to break with that past, move on, or as in Australia, bring out the normative elements is just get over it as Australia's phrase, Australian's phrase you just you know the worst thing you could say to someone suffering from trauma is to just get over it but the Australians like to say that um, okay as Ruti Titel observes in her genealogy of transitional justice, the and I'm quoting here, the paradoxical goal is to undo history. And so the threshold challenge, and transitions are always threshold situations, the threshold challenge is one of, quotes, remaining in history. You've got to undo it and remain in it. An extremely difficult task for every procedure that I'm going to be mentioning. This, I think, has a populist dimension, whether populism on the democratic side or on the authoritarian side. While moving on might be the implicit norm of many rule of law narratives, consider the explicit invocation of a break with the past by Aldo Rico, a former military office in the Malvinas War, or if you're in England, you'd probably call it the Argentine War. Um, in 2007, as prosecutions of the military for dirty war crimes get up ahead of steam under the Kirchner presidency, that's Nestor, not the current Christina, um, he argues that it is, quote, counterproductive to return to the past. Okay. First then, narrative of memory builds on information and is all, that information is already connected to a larger normative story. What I want to actually pick out is another strand, though, that, and this is the one that is more interesting for me, and hopefully for you. There is um, the other strand is not so much a politics or polit a political narrative of memory, but what might be called an ethics of memory. Here, dealing with the past is conducted in the mode of acknowledgement. What is at stake is not so much information, but understanding. Narrating the past, recalling it, remembering it, is a demand that others recognise the criminality, the injury, the injustice, pain and the suffering. And such projects, whether art installations, human rights advocacy, protests staged by the Madras and the Abuelas of the Plaza de Mayo, the demand for information and the end to impunity not only instantiates a break with the past, but also establishes an ambivalence in the activity. It is as if acknowledgement of the past is caught between the burden of history and the presumption of a future. Hence, the importance of the practices of bearing witness, where bearing witness is viscerally conducted as a life lived with the past, not oriented necessarily towards the future. Um, in the context of Argentina, this working through of a, or this bearing witness, I think, has taken shape largely within a continual return of and to law. As the La Plata Tribunal put it in its von Wernick judgment, 
quotes, and I love it when I read cases and they quote the philosophers that I read as the guiding force of the judgment and reasoning. So I'll give it to you as well. Um, quote, the quote goes like this. Michel Foucault, the philosopher. Quoted every day by English judges. Uh, yes, every day. <laughs> Um, he's actually been quoted in a whole this is from the second in a series of judgments in which he gets quoted for the same claim Michel Foucault speaks of the law as quotes unquote a producer of truth and agreeing with that concept permit me I'm quoting the judge permit me to recall again the importance of the recognition of the truth for the construction of collective memory especially in societies such as ours that have suffered the genocide which led to the trial that has just been completed that's a 2007 judgment he'd already been picked up in a 2006 judgment and most recently in the Cordoba Vidala judgment of 2010 they go back to this key idea what's the name of the judgment? Von Wernick. He used the name, used the term genocide. Yes. It's interesting. Yeah. Um, it's, genocide is quite a mobile term in, in law as well, I think. It's kind of well, sometimes. We'll it's, it, but in international criminal law, that would not be genocide. But we'll come to that. <laughs> mm, yeah, we could have an argument Peter about James. that. <laughs> <laughs> Technically, maybe not, but classification wise, I think sure. you could actually argue that it's at least unsettled and confused. Um, okay, so what I've just got so far then is this just this vague idea that, oh, not vague, specific idea that I want to think about a memorial jurisdiction. And if we just set this up a little bit more, holding more onto the jurisdiction side now rather than the memory side, I think there's this vast array of legal repertoires, and I'll just give you a couple of examples um, by way of context. I've already mentioned the Truth Commissioner's report, the trial of the military leaders. In their wake, you get amnesties and pardons as quite specific legal technologies, and they're legislated largely and decreed for the military. Raoul Alfonson, for example, sets up the um, Punto Finale law, which is the full stop law of 1986 and the due obedience law of 1987. Carlos Menem, the next president after Alfonson, um, is elected in 1989 and he pardons Videla and many other officers. Um, and these take place, these amnesties and pardons take place in a decade-long campaign of misinformation and denial by the military in the aftermath of the Dirty War. So they're kind of like, you could read them as straightforward um, attempts, and Alfonson has, in particular has justified it on the basis that it's a compromise measure. The question, it was a real live question for a long time, whether or not the Alfonson government would just collapse and they'd go back into a hunter simply because of that resistance by the military. Um, in that climate, you get three moments which I want to say are kind of important. There are others, but for today's purposes. One is the truth trials. These are a legal innovation. They're launched by a human rights advocacy group, um, which I'll use the acronym is CELS, in 1985 as a way to get around the amnesties and pardons. Basically, and this is a really interesting for me question, because it holds the question of truth and guilt in, separ it separates the two out, that you can have one without the other. Um, basically, what they argue is, 
we've got amnesties and pardons, yes, we can't overturn them, so what are we going to do? We limit their reach, their jurisdiction, um, limited to criminal, um, they argue that they're limited to criminal prosecution, and what they are to say then is there's another jurisdiction that exists, a declaratory jurisdiction. So the courts then, and they, the courts agree, you can actually have a, a verdict in strict etymological terms and in now in legal terms, which is simply a declaration of truth and not a decision as to guilt or innocence. Okay, and on that basis, a couple of truth trials start to take place. Um, so that's one of the kind of key moments. Second, um, the eruption of high-profile and visible confessions and apologies by those responsible, the most infamous being Adolfo Selingo, who was a naval officer who participated in um, ESMA, which was the, probably the no most notorious torture and detention center, but also more specifically in this context, he participated in the death flights over the Rio de Plata and sometimes the um, Atlantic Ocean. They take the disappeared, the detained and the tortured, still alive most often, up into the plains and then drop them into the water and fly back home to ESMA. Um, here, what you get is all of a sudden there's this kind of gigantic expansion of public space with all these eruption of confessions and apologies. Um, you get an extremely expanded public space, um, which in effect transforms the status of the military within Argentine society. They still had quite a high status. The state, their status is starting to plummet. Third moment, I think the advocacy by the Abuelas, which is still ongoing now, regarding the kidnapped children of the disappeared, not so much the disappeared, but the children of the disappeared who are adopted out, basically taken over by their torturers, do not change their identity, etc. The children don't know. Um, and here they're somewhat like truth trials in their way of evading amnesties and pardons initially, no longer. Um, but what they're actually saying here is they're saying it's not a new declaration, it's not a declaration of truth that's involved, it's a different, it's back to the criminal jurisdiction and say we'll limit the range of crimes that the amnesties and pardons are actually available for. So now they get the crimes of kidnapping children, destruction of um, official documents and such like, and they start to use these to start to reopen what has now become the question of the stolen identity. There's another story there, which I won't go into, I'll just note if people are interested, is the birth of forensic anthropology, I think, is kind of associated with this issue um, and is ongoing. It's about genetically being able to set up tests to genetically link grandparents to, uh, through blood tests. Um, to children who don't actually know that they are either related to the disappear in any way or whatsoever. Um, okay, all these moments <coughs> I think are simply precursors, however, to the current round of prosecutions and trials, which largely kick off um, in the aftermath of the Nestor Kirchner presidency and currently go on. So let me just give you some statistics. Um, in the last four years, some 652 people have had criminal proceedings brought against them for human rights violations relating to this dirty war. In 2010, for example, um, 19 trials are concluded, 119 people are judged, 
12 of those 119 already had convictions, so they're repeatedly convicted. Um, 98, however, are new accused, and 110 um, are convicted and nine are acquitted. Um, to round off the story very quickly, before I get to where I needed to get to, and I'm taking too long on this, um, is just the Bedela judgment in 2010. I mentioned that earlier from the Cordoba Tribunal. He was found guilty of 29 counts of murder, 32 of torture, and one of torture followed by death, and is sentenced to life imprisonment or perpetua, as the tribunal declared. I just want you to hold on to that idea of life imprisonment that comes up again. Um, what I think is interesting, apart from the extreme length of the judgment and the way it retells the whole story of the Dirty War and every legal event subsequent to it up until 2010, um, is the way in which it actually comes out and says that the judiciary and the court itself, the, tri uh, the Cordoba Tribunal, was generally complicit and lacked an ethics of commitment. Um, in relation to the dirty war, and secondly, that um, so that's generally nationally across the legal system, but also this particular tribunal itself were lacking in both those respects, and that that, that was demonstrated not simply by straightforward evidence, but of the testimony of victims and survivors. Okay. So that's something of the contours of the jurisdiction side of the memorial jurisdiction. What I want to quickly turn to in the time I have left is to kind of give you a feel for the film. Has anybody seen the film by any chance? Yes, some of you have. Okay, you get enough from the storyline and I'm only picking out bits and pieces and it's not a recounting of the whole film, but I can. A friend of mine said to me just recently, he said it's a film that keeps on giving and I can assure you that it would if anybody's interested in transitional justice questions. Okay, so the film goes, um, it's this, called The Secret in Their Eyes, or El Secret de Jesus Odios, and apologies for my execrable spoken it's Spanish. Spanish. It's Spanish. Yes, it's, it's an Argentinian movie by uh, Juan Jose Campanella, who also has a minor life as a writer of soap operas in America for Hollywood sort of things. Um, okay. The key thing for me is, okay, you're getting at the end of the film, the protagonist, a re recently retired deputy clerk in an examining magistrate's court who spent his life working in the criminal justice system in Buenos Aires, asks, how can someone live an empty life? How do you live a life full of nothing? And so a quote from him, his name is Benjamin Esposito. Um, how can I do nothing about it? I've been asking myself for 25 years and I've only been able to come up with one answer. Forget it, it was another lifetime, it's over, don't ask. It wasn't another lifetime, it was this one, it is the one. I want to understand, how can someone live an empty life? How do you live a life full of nothing? How do you do it? Okay, that's, that's the question that organizes, it's the primary enigma of the plot. Um, and it's also going to help me organise my reading. Um, it goes something like this very briefly. Um, it's the story of Benjamin Esposito, a law clerk who's trying to write a novel in his retirement. 
the novel he imagines is based on a case he was involved in some 25 years previously, the rape and murder of a young female school teacher. As he writes, he narrates the case but is assailed by images. Esposito and his colleagues, Hastings and Sandoval, investigate and hunt down the perpetrator Gomez in mid to late 70s Argentina. After several years, the killer rapist is caught by Esposito and sentenced to life imprisonment. However, after two years in prison, Gomez is released by executive order. You'll be hearing Amnesty's pardons in the background here. The release in order is engineered by one of Esposito's fellow law clerks in order to use the killer's talents in a secret police squad against, quote, subversives. Um, this is one of the many echoes in the film of that peculiar mix of democracy and authoritarianism that has characterized Argentine law and politics from one peron onwards. And in fact, the story of the film is cut from the weave of this political cloth. Ten minutes. More specifically, it begins in 74, just before the death of Juan Peron and the succession of his third wife, Isabel, to the presidency. Here it also sets the office politics of the law clerks and judges in the context of the dirty war that is imminent. And then returns to its contemporary aftermath with the resurgence of memory projects and criminal prosecutions that I've described earlier. In the foreground, however, is the narrative of the criminal case. It's a crime story, so that's its genre. Um, the Morales case, as it's referred to in the film, reverberates throughout the lives of all the characters involved. The deputy clerk, his fellow clerk and friend Pablo Sandoval, his senior colleague Irene Hastings, who's variously a clerk and judge in the film, the surviving husband of the rape and murder victim, Ricardo Morales, and the perpetrator of the crime, Gomez. How does he stitch it? Okay. Um, in terms of cutting, okay. There's a double narrative that runs through. One is the narrative of the case itself and as, as positive the law clerks attempt to recall it and hold on to it 25 years later as he tries to write. Um, and the second is um, the relationship between Esposito, the law clerk, and Irene Hastings, the clerk initially and now judge in the late, the 25 years later. Um, okay, what you get is, it's, this gives you the double meaning of the title, The Secret in Their Eyes. First, it's while looking at an old photograph of the victim with her husband that Esposito and, and unwittingly the husband discover the identity of the killer and rapist. And this discovery is based on the intensity of the perpetrator's gaze at the now dead woman. And second, throughout the film, it's the exchange of glances and gazes rather than dialogue between Esposito and Hastings that cinematically establishes the currents of desire between them both. Bringing these two together, Esposito will say to Hastings as dialogue, it's the look in their eyes, that's the key. The eyes speak, they bullshit too, but they should keep quiet. Sometimes it's better not to look. Now that's what he's saying, and he's actually talking about the killer and the, the uh, just look at the victim. But what the film is doing at the time, emphasizing the image rather than the narrative, is that it's actually always cutting backwards and forwards, as he's saying this, between the clerk and his love interest. Okay, so you're getting these two, the secret in their eyes is they glance, he speaks about the case. Okay, so love is a matter of images and the crime is a matter of the narrative. 
Um, so if that's kind of just a very brief kind of feel for the movie, let me just go back to that question. How is it possible to live a life full of nothing, to live an empty life? The film gives you two answers. One is the trauma of beginning. Um, goes something like this, and it's trauma of beginning the life of law, I suppose. The very first scene of the film is presented as a scene of writing and its subsequent erasure, quite literally, in fact. The retired esposito is beginning to write the novel based on his memory of the Morales case, but he continually scores out and increasingly fills up the waste bin. So you see him sitting um, at his desk, scribbling and writing. Um, when I saw this, I thought, this is how I write. But um, So it's clearly a whole series of identifications on my part going on here. Um, basically, he visits Hastings, who is now a judge, and tells her, quotes, my biggest problem is that I've started 50 times and never get past the fifth line. She offers him three responses. First, disbelief. What do you know about writing novels? He's a lawyer, after all. Second, a typewriter fondly described as the old Olivetti, and finally some concrete instructions on how to proceed. She says, start wherever you remember the most, which part comes back most often. That's the image you should start with. Start not with the word, but with the image. What, what is this image that returns to assail him and arrest the possibility of narrative? The expectation set up by the film editing is that the reader will be shown the scene of the crime that begins the story of the Morales case. Instead, what you get is a reverie, a daydream, in which Esposito recalls when he met Hastings and fell in love with her at first sight. And it's only then that the film moves to a subsequent point in the past and the event of the Morales rape and murder. Okay. There, it's quite hard to actually hold on to uh, the temporality of this and this is partly what I'm trying to do is to make sure that the temporality is complicated because trauma complicates the times of experience um, and the, the film is actually doing precisely that. It's got double presence um, and so forth. So. He feels the need to, Esposito feels the need to start writing, but then he suffers from the impossibility of, impossibility of beginning at the beginning. Why? Um, one, his own diagnosis, he keeps on getting sidetracked. Second, um, it might just be that the beginnings are always plural. You never have, as in the the full stop laws or the due obedience laws or the jurisdictional, temporal jurisdictions of most legal institutions, um, a clear cut time that you can actually start. Um, you've just always got many times in the beginning. As Esposito remarks at one point, I remember plenty of beginnings, but I'm not sure what they have to do with the story. Um, and Hastings by this time is getting impatient and she just says, start at the beginning and stop dwelling on it, which is a version of a move-on story. We live in the, the uh, my response, we dwell in the middle. A life full of nothing is a life overflowing with the intimacies of the office, work, marriage, political relocation, and not a few affairs. That this both arrests the narrative and importantly is a spur to writing life is made explicit in the film by the circulation of the old Olivetti typewriter, which Hastings had given to Esposito. The typewriter's letter A does not work. It doesn't leave a black letter on the page. It keeps on leaving blank spaces. And this is one place, I think, just 
amongst many, but I'll take, give you one, where a minor but structuring detail in the film provides a meeting point in the film between the life of law and the memory of the dirty war. The letter A is the one that's missing. Triple A is the acronym for Alianza Anticommunista Argentina and was active during the presidency of Isabel Perón, which is the time of the film, the first time of the film. With the return to criminal prosecution, you get start to get a prosecution of members of the AAA for dirty war crimes significantly prior to the actual coup d'etat. Um, and in the film, that's one kind of fold, um, to the dirty war. The other one is to the off the life of law. In the film, we see various characters in the institutions of law frustrated about how hard this typewriter makes it for them to do the work of writing files, binding files, filling in forms, witness depositions, writing memos that overflow the desks and offices that occupy the built legal spaces of the film. It's quite amazing watching the film where you just see these office spaces and the piles of paper that just rise up and the sidekick Sandoval spends most of his life using sizzle cord to actually bind the files together. Um, as, the old as the old Olivetti is passed from character to character, it would seem that its function is that of the MacGuffin, the cinematic object whose circulation is devoid of meaning and reference beyond making us aware that we are watching a film. However, in this film, the malfunctioning typewriter becomes, I think, can be read as the circulating representation of trauma, a quite prosaic emblem of an unassimilable experience that overwhelms both the life of law and its personas, and which Esposito works through in terms of the intimacy of his legal case history. So the story of the crime story is actually linked into a story of um, the life of law as a traumatic life. Um, he, after all, it's the addition of the letter A to a word that had come unbidden to this law clerk while he slept and which he had written on his bedside pad that will have converted in English, I fear, into I love you. Clearly translation doesn't work here. All you have to do is go from T-E-M-O, I fear, in Spanish, and then T-E-A-M-O is I love you in Spanish. Okay, so you just shift the meaning by the addition of the letter A. This, I think, is a, the emblem of a life lived with trauma and law that dwells between a never again and a moving on. So that's the first. Second trauma, I think, is just basically being in love for criminal lawyers. Um, what do I want to do with that? Leave it to one side in the interest of hearing some... What did, it, what did I... Want to actually, the other thing I wanted to actually emphasize um, here is just the question of two things, I suppose, um, and then I'll wrap up. Genres of representation. In the film, there is a quite thematized, explicit link as to what it is that um, the character is actually trying to do. And that is, is, is he, in writing it, he keeps on being confronted with, I'm trying to write a novel, I'm having difficulty and all of the characters around him keep on mocking him, ironically, or ironizing his practice and saying, you're writing a novel, you don't know how to write a novel, how could you write a novel? 
and he says, I have all the time. I write files. And he goes, oh, so you're writing a file. And then the grieving husband, when he's having this conversation, says, it reads, gives him the draft of the novel eventually towards the end of the movie, and he says, it reads like a memo. Um, okay, so there's a confusion of genres of representation and the difficulty of pinning down what it is that is our activity as lawyers, and that I think as lawyers, what interests me here in the film is the way in which you try to represent the case as a novel, but you express it as a file or a memorandum, an archive that emerges not out of our personalities, but out of the archive of his office, the court documents which you get have to submit all of the time. The other, what, how that gets, what they get, the other example I wanted to do was just to follow the parts of speech through which it happened, um, through which international criminal law works. And I suggest that one of the things that indicates that law is itself traumatized is the way in which international criminal law has real trouble working out what it is as a discipline. What's its subject matter? Is it crime or is it law? You start off with law and you split it into, well, is it international lawyers? Are they telling us that it's law just because they say it? It's not necessarily. Well, okay, if it's not international lawyers, it is international criminal law, so maybe it's criminal lawyers talking and they can't actually work that one out either because then everybody comes back and says, well, domestic criminal law is very different from international criminal law. It has a whole range of different jurisdictional questions, largely. Um, what happens then, however, is that in Argentina it's extremely interesting to watch the way in which the crimes get distributed across the various parts of speech. And this might be too technical, but I'll say it and we can, you can, if I'm not clear enough, we can talk about it if you're interested. What happens in um, I think is that in Argentina, mur murder shifts between um, the nominative, which is when we consult talking about definitional structures, evidential or the adjectival to keep the language right. Nominative goes to definition. The adjectival goes to the evidential parts of law. The adverbial goes to the procedural. And what happens in Argentina in a lot of its cases is murder has a nominative place in domestic criminal law, an adjectival place in as much as it's part of the enumeration of the crime against humanity, and then an adverbial place in as much as statutes of limitation start to restrict prosecutions under domestic law. Um, for murder in domestic law, but not for crimes against humanity under international law. Um, so what you're getting is that the crimes themselves circulate and never quite settle down. And when images, or crimes in this instance, circulate, I think what you're going to start to understand is the legal doctrine having, having to respond to something it has no resources to respond to, namely trauma or the terms like atrocity and injury. Um, so that would be my wrap-up. The wrap-up would then go something like this. And it's in the longer form, it goes something like that, that I've just, there's a basic conceit that I've used in the paper, which I'm sure you've all got, but I'll tell you it anyway. And that is that simply, if you've got a memorial jurisdiction of crime, which is shaped by law, then you can treat it as a case history, and case history is what Freud developed the whole of psychoanalysis out of. And if you can do that, you can read its genres, its compulsive repetitions, and its blank letters as 
bearing witness to the trauma of its speech. And I would suggest that to the extent that one wants to engage in a juristic enterprise which is nevertheless critical, um, you have to actually watch the ways in which international criminal law or internet transitional justice remains unsettled and is not satisfied with its tasks. Okay. So, thank you very much for listening and apologies for going way over.